All right. Um, welcome back from the other room. Yeah, so we've, um, hopefully we've, we've collated some questions and I know some people are still writing questions. So we'll take some now. If you have any that you've written on the slip, please just hand it um, to one of the ushers at the back. Um, and um, I know some people also have live questions as well, so we'll come back to those. But we'll begin now with um, a question sent in by email um, by Abu Bay. All right, so I'll read. I perfectly well in my subjective opinion understand the need to be part of a church. But am I to join one of such organizations based on inclination and then decide to tolerate any excesses, things not in tandem with scripture I see? Or am I to keep searching until I get to the promised land, an almost perfect church? Well, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I, as I try to say towards the end, um, I believe, I really do believe that we all should be part of, that's what this is. I believe we should all be part of church, but I don't actually believe we should be part of any kind of church. I really, I really don't, and I say that with no apologies. I mean, I'm a Christian, and there are many people that do things that I don't agree with. They are your, like your embarrassing uncle at a party, you know. Um, and I don't want you to spend time with my embarrassing uncle privately. And in the same way, especially once take you to the other room. But in the same way, I don't think that every church is good for us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for people to immediately bail once you see that um, there's something wrong in the church. And many times, let's be honest, what we say is wrong in the church is a preferential issue. It's not really an issue that the scripture would say would hold to this degree. So you have to, I think you have to have certain priorities. So here are a few things. I like to say, for instance, um, that on the issues of truth, so one of the ways you test is this church a church I should belong to, is on the issues of truth, not every truth in the Bible has the same weight. So if we can have primary, I think there are primary ones, and if it, your church is not holding to it, any of these primary truths, at least if you're rejecting any of them, or they are not in any way prominent in the life of the church, then you should question whether they should be part of that. So primary truths will include things like, what's the church's view on whether God is Trinity or not? Um, what is the church's view on whether Jesus Christ is, was, a, was fully man and fully God? In fact, 1 John 4 says, that if you have a bad opinion on that, that is the spirit of the Antichrist that is there. I don't think you ought to be in a church where the spirit of the Antichrist is. So you have some of those very important truths codified in things like the Nicene Creed and all of those things. They are important. They are not, well, you know, those things that we Christians, we most times Christians don't even know what it is. And how much more if it's not at the center of the church. Then there are secondary things, which are very important but doesn't mean this is not a Christian place. Secondary things could be, what is your view on baptism? What is your view on whether or not the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the continuation of gifts continue? What is your view on, should it be one pastor that rules over everything? 
Should it be a board of deacons that rules church government? Those things are reasons enough to be able to say, this church is a good church, but these are very important issues that I think they are wrong on, and so I'll be part of another. But you are part of another church. And there are some things that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, they don't, they don't practice communion every week. Or they don't, um, um, I don't know, like, they don't, they're not talking about the fact that Jesus is coming tomorrow, you know. Because how did you know he's coming tomorrow? Because you did some mathematical calculations on the Bible. Those are tertiary things. Within the same church, we can disagree. So that's theological. You have to sort out where you are theologically. I think with the primary and some of the secondary things, you have to know what's the church's stance on them and does it play a role in the life of the church. But then you come into the practices of the church. I do think that it's coming to a time very, very crucial that you do judge how the leadership functions, right? You may not have to know all the intricacies of how money moves, and sometimes the people that are most nosy about money are the people that don't give money at all. Now, you don't have to know everything, but you can know, you can judge what accountability structures are here. Is this person, even though Christ is the head of the church, ruling as though this person owns the church? I tell you that because if it is not, if that is the case, then you will not have a healthy church. So please, my point is, join a an imperfect church. You can't find a perfect church. Join an imperfect church. Judge the practices of the church and the doctrine of the church. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine. So I think you want to find out those things that are important, not just subjectively, objectively, as the scripture says, and then see whether there is a healthy practice of, um, of, of uh, accountability in the leadership. And then when you join that, no, because you are not part of the leadership, you will see things that you don't agree with. They may be tertiary things, but remember you cannot join, a, if you join a community where they agree with you on everything, guess what, you are the Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is not the one there. Alrighty, thank you. So we got um, some questions via text. Very interesting questions. Um, yesterday was International Women's Day. Oh, Yay. <laughs> so we're back to the gender question. And it goes, Christianity subjugates women. There are clear verses in the Bible that tells women to keep quiet in church. And Jesus chose only men as disciples. How do you explain that? That's the first one. And the second one says, there are specific incidents of God declaring holy war on unbelievers or pagan nations, or what clearly seems like ethnic cleansing, e.g. Jericho, true or false? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, 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 so, that's so easy. It's so easy that I'm not even going to answer the question. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, well, whoever sent this question, thank you very much. You are making me earn my pay for today. <laughs> Those aren't easy questions, and yet they're questions that should be answered. Now, let me quickly say this. Um, one of the things that you would observe about anything that has life is diversity. Now, and some diversity and some dif sometimes diversity and difference. I really do believe the Church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. And because of that, there's some diversity. And so some of the opinions that I may share about some of these things is not the opinion on every single Christian. But I would say that um, 
though it's not the, whatever the views, our views on these are, uh, let me say this, it doesn't change the fact, and you have to investigate the fact, especially if you are not a Christian and you put it this, the bottom line of the whole of Christianity is this, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If he didn't rise from the dead, why should you care about anything the Bible says? I don't, I shouldn't. In fact, guess what tells you you shouldn't care? The Bible tells you you shouldn't care. So I would say, I will answer these questions. They're not very easy questions, but that doesn't change that fact. And I would say, if Jesus Christ is who he really said he is, that is, if he rose from the dead as no one has ever done, then you should listen to him. Guess why? Because if you die, I don't think you can rise from the dead. All right. Now, to the question of gender. Now, you said Christianity subjugates women. I don't think that's true. Now, if you say you have seen certain forms and practices among certain Christians that subjugate women, I would say, go for it. Many times in the church, we are actually castigating guys that subjugate women. Because we don't say, stop subjugating and oppressing women, despite what the Bible says. It is, stop subjugating women because of what the Bible says. First thing, when God created humanity, God said to the, uh, he says, and this is the highest form, uh, the highest, um, 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 what's the word? The highest dignity, dignifying worth that you can put on anybody. In all secular forms of, you know, human uh, rights and all of that, if you want to ground the reason why we have human rights, most people don't have any foundation for it. It's just, I think we should have human rights. Why? Because I feel we should have human rights. Are you serious? <laughs> what if that was an indigestion? As in, no, that, now human, uh, Christianity says this. Human beings should have rights above any other thing. Why? Because human beings are created in the image of God. It first assumes a God of infinite worth and then says those who are created in his image, therefore, should also have infinite worth. And when he created humanity, he says he created them male and female, meaning that the, equal, uh, the, the, the value that he puts on a man is exactly the same value that he puts on a woman. So when we talk about the value that we, the gender should have, it has nothing to do with the roles that they play. It has everything to do with the inherent worth that God has placed in them. Men and women are equal, period, because they're both created in the image of God. But according to how the Bible teaches, men and women don't always serve in the same roles. Because though they are equal as equal human beings, they are different in their sex and their gender. The difference is not, has nothing to do with their value. The difference has to do with how they must complement one another to achieve the plan and purpose of God. So when God told man and uh, both of them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, was that a mission? Yes. Now, when it says be fruitful and multiply, is the man going to be pregnant? But does the woman have a sperm? No. They are both going to complement one another, play different roles in accomplishing the mission of God. And so what then happens as we see Christianity, as we see the Bible storyline unfold, is that in, a different, in different situations, men and women are called to play different roles 
in order to accomplish the mission of God. So when you come into, for instance, the family, God says that the man is the head and the woman um, um, follows the leading of the man. Now that headship, as many people have tried to say, is not, it's not the man is the head and the woman is the servant. Absolutely not. In fact, in many places in the Psalms, it refers to God as our help. And also the Holy Spirit is called our helper. It is a complementary but different role that enables the other person to function in what the other person is meant to do. So the man is meant to be the head and the woman is meant to help the man. Again, it's not saying the woman is defined by the man. It's saying they have different roles. But in, just as we have in any ship, you have to have one captain and you have to have people that um, that the, oh, it's following the captain. Now, I can say more about how that works out. I think most people interpret that through our African traditional patriarchal lens, and that has led to why many people say that Christianity oppresses. It's not an issue of whether the Bible says it. It's an issue of how people interpret it. And many times we are not interpreting the Bible for what the Bible says. We're interpreting it through our lens. I just take one, one particular scripture that was mentioned. It says that the Bible says that women should keep quiet in the church. Yes, should I drop this mic? Exactly what I was going to ask. Maybe she should drop this mic. Now, that's taken in one, um, that's 1 Timothy 2. Also, in 1 Corinthians 11, it also, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it also mentions that, that women are not meant to speak in the church. But three chapters before, it says that women should be prophesying. Now, it's either the Bible is manifestly contradictory, and some people believe that, even if it's contradictory, I don't think the people that are writing it are so, they are so blockheaded that within three chapters, you want to immediately contradict yourself. It's either it's contradictory, I don't think it is, or the way we interpret that silence is not exactly what we think the silence is. And exactly what was happening is this, very simple. The Bible says just as um, you have a gender relationship, complementary role gender relationship, and headship of the male in the marriage. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't, the woman doesn't play leadership roles in the marriage. The difference between positional leadership and functional leadership. Functional leadership means this. If my wife, for instance, she's better at managing our home, managing the operations of our house, no matter opinions I have, my wife leads in operations of the house. Preach it. And I lead in other things. Where my positional authority then comes to bear is this. My wife and I have to take a decision. We both talk about the decision. She brings her opinion, I bring my opinion. We bring over and over. Sometimes her opinion prevails because she makes more sense and she's more competent and she has proven to me that it's wrong. And so I submit to that. But what if we get to a situation where my wife and I cannot agree on a particular thing? We both have legitimate opinions. I have listened as much as I can to her, giving her the chance to speak. She has listened to me. And eventually, we come to an impasse. We've prayed about it. We still can't reach a decision. And we have to take a decision now. You know what happens? My wife does not agree that I am right. My wife submits to the arrangement of God that has ordained marriage and has said, Marriage is here for fruitfulness and for flourishing. So she will submit to the arrangement God has put, not necessarily to my opinion. I can't bully her to accept my opinion, 
but a decision has to make. And when, I, when she submits joyfully to that position, if I miss it, she's not going to come and say, eh, I told you so. And that's how the leadership thing works. And it says that in the church as well, in the, in the highest leadership of the church, again, like in our church, women are leaders in all places. But in the highest leadership of the church, it says that that should reflect the home. And that was for men. And the way it should therefore work in the church, and these verses about women uh, not uh, being quiet, was when it comes to setting the doctrine of a particular local church, that is the things that we believe, some people have to take responsibility. You may disagree with what is there, but some people have to be able to take responsibility and say, at this church, on this particular position, this is what we believe. The Bible says that is for elders of the church, those in the highest form of leadership in the church, which has a gender um, qualification um, uh, thing there. And it's in that vein that it says that the woman should not exercise the authority and should keep quiet. Not that the woman should say absolutely nothing. It's in that vein also in 1 Corinthians 14 in evaluating prophecies that it says that is open to the leadership of the church because eventually we have to have one position. So I know I've said so many things just to get to that. But some questions are not very simple. It requires a complex answer. Second one. Or you ethnic want to follow cleansing. Up? Yes. No, it's not ethnic cleansing. And I can't go through everything now, but there are a number of parameters that um, even just even right now that people like, uh, that objectively define ethnic cleansing by. For instance, there has to be a motive, a motive of hatred towards that particular race. That is, the reason we are going to destroy these people is because we believe they are an inferior race and we are a superior race. God never told the people of Israel to destroy certain people like um, um, the people in Jericho and all of those things or the Canaanites because they were Canaanites, if you see what I mean. It wasn't, saying if, or the, it wasn't because of the color of their skin. It wasn't because of certain things. And that's one of the things that, you know, like we take the Rwandan genocide. You know, these people, Tutsis and, Hutu, and, Hutu, and, and Hutus, were actually destroying themselves because they had long generational angst towards one another. So why did God tell um, them to do it? I don't know whether anything I'll say is going to convince you, but I have to start with this. You cannot answer that question if you don't start from where the Bible starts. Many times, many people that oppose what the Bible teach, you, you, I think you, we, we do something with the Bible that we don't do with any other book. We just dip into the middle somewhere and say, look at what is there, and I can't believe the whole thing. Whereas I'll say, why don't you treat the Bible like you would treat any book? Read the book throughout and see whether some of these plot lines actually develop over a period of time. So, for instance, the Bible opens, the way the Bible opens is so important. In the beginning, God created. In other words, everything that comes after that creation occurs because that God has created it. Therefore, that God, one, is absolutely wiser than anything he created. Second, that God has, a, he has sovereign rule over all that he has created. Third, that means if that God decides to do whatever he wants to do, no matter how we feel about that, he has the right to do it. 
And I can tell you, beyond that, I cannot question. I, do I see certain things that in the Bible I look like, oh, if I was God, I think I'll do things differently. And I hear that whisper, that's why you're not God. I can't hear sit down and defend who the Bible says is the almighty over everything. What you need to be able to show is just to say, I don't think that God is the any real God. And I ask, okay, then what's the real God? And so what we see with the Jericho and Canaanite thing here is that this God says, look, these people have become a problem. These people have not respected the, right, the fact that there is one God that created everything and have decided to go their own way. And they will be spreading this kind of life. And I want to bring salvation to the whole world. Because this kind of life that these people are living, when multiplied over the whole world, will eventually destroy the world. God destroyed those people because God ultimately cared for the world. If you, someone came in today, and let's say you're a police officer, and the guy came, three of them came in, and they were about to raid and kill all the, let's say, 70 people that are here. And you had the power to kill each of those people. Would you say, well, killing, I can't kill, is bad? No, you probably will kill all three of them. And in the way God has, because he sees everything from the beginning to the end, he said these people are a bigger problem that you and I just looking inside that Bible actually can see. And so that ultimately he shows, he displays his justice and resettles Israel into the land that some of these people had occupied or this, some of these people were resisting them to actually get to that land because he had a salvation plan for the whole world Israel was central to that plan, and therefore Israel's enemies were to be destroyed. Today, God's own people cannot and should not ever do that. The plan that God had with Israel had a particular time limit, and now God's people, the church, who follow the person of Jesus Christ, who says that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword, are not called to go into any nation called a Christian nation, to go and destroy the people because they're unbelievers. No, we fight in a different kind of way. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are made mighty through God. We persuade people. We speak with people. We try to convince people. That is how we now wage warfare. I'm happy to talk about that any other time. But I'll try and be quicker with some of these questions now. Okay, thanks. Um, so the next question is, is Jesus God? If yes... Is there any categorical statement accrued to him that, I, that he was God or that he is God? Um, answer is yes. Right? Now, there's a premise there that says, is there any um, categorical statement attributed to him um, as though there is a difference between what the Bible says, and Jesus, who then says that the scriptures cannot be broken, and that everything the scriptures say about him is true, now he doesn't have to come out and say, hey, I'm God, um, to start. You see, sometimes what happens is we come to the Bible, and we feel that the Bible must answer questions, our questions, in the way we want them asked. First of all, the Bible was written to certain people and then it was written for us. So if you have certain questions from the Bible, you have to go into the Bible on its own terms to see whether or not it answers your question. Now, for instance, um, 
Jesus says, there are certain people, he's, he's addressing them, they're Pharisees, and in John chapter 8, and Jesus says to them, um, they're like, they're talking that God is their father, and Abraham is their father, and God, Jesus said to them, look, <laughs> if you believed, if, you, if God was truly your father, you would believe that I'm sent from God. Actually, I know who your real daddy is. He's called someone called Satan. And they were very angry and said, we're children of Abraham. Jesus said, well, if you believed Abraham, you will believe me. Because before Abraham was, I am. And any Jew then that heard Jesus say that will go ballistic. Because they couldn't use those words. Because, in fact, he was saying he was God. And he actually says, when he said, I am, that they wanted to stone him because he claimed equality with God. Another part, if you read Mark chapter 2, some people brought a, a paralytic for Jesus to heal. He was on his bed. Rather than Jesus heal the man, Jesus then decides to say, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And everybody looked at him and said, how dare you say that? Who can forgive sins except he is what? God. Just said, Exactly. <laughs> That's the point. And you have many, 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 many. Now, again, if you want a theological lesson about it, you can go to Mark chapter 1. Okay, let me give you one more. Mark chapter 1. This is not Jesus' um, uh, words exactly, but you can trace some things. Mark chapter 1, um, it talks about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. And he's prophesied about as the one who is in the wilderness, a voice calling in the wilderness to prepare, in Isaiah, to prepare the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh was the covenant God. All right. So John the Baptist now eventually emerges, and he is preparing the way. He's preaching repentance, and he's saying, I am coming. I'm trying to prepare the way for someone who is coming. Yahweh is coming. And when Yahweh comes, he says, that's Yahweh there. That's Jesus. And Jesus doesn't refuse. There are so many places. If all Jesus needed to do was to tell John the Baptist, don't say that, don't blaspheme. Jesus never does. So there are so many places in the Bible. I can't quite remember all of them. But if you want, just read the Gospels and you see so many. All righty. So we have some questions also related to some of the questions you've answered. The first one is, what is the standard for moral and civil attitudes? Is it the scripture or law? Or law guiding the environment we find, or the law guiding the environment we find ourselves in? That's one. Um, Just say so the, first, the first part again. What is the moral? What is the standard for moral and civil attitudes? Is it the scripture or law? Or the law guiding the environment we find ourselves in? Okay. Um, you want to put the second one on track? So, okay, I think you should answer this before. The All right, okay. This, this is, again, it's not an easy question. You guys are too smart. You're not asking simple questions. Um, it depends, right? First of all, um, Nigeria is a secular nation. Now, what is a secular nation? At least in the very world of what secular uh, what secularism means. Secularism is not equated to atheism. Secularism does not mean there is no God. That's not what secularism means. Even though increasingly many people think that's what secularism was meant to mean. Secularism was meant to be a public space where people that have different 
opinions and especially different foundations for how they make decisions, especially moral decisions, can come together to reason and hopefully form some kind of unity. So, for instance, in the Nigerian, um, in our pledge, we say something like, uh, our pledge says, um, I pledge my country, how does it end? To serve Nigeria without my So help me what? God. Notice what that means. One, it means that even in our secular constitution, we believe that there is one God. It doesn't say, so help me the gods. It says, so help me what? God. Now, notice what it does not say. It doesn't say, so help me Allah. And it doesn't say, so help me God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what they had agreed in the secular space is that Nigeria, by and large, will be a monotheistic country without defining exactly who that God was. The mistake that many times we then make is to say, ah, we all believe in God. Well, actually, if you're a true Muslim, you will not believe that that God is the Christian God. Because in your Quran, it says that Christians have got it all muddled up. And if you're a true Christian, you can't believe that it's the same God because Allah says that Jesus was not, the Quran says that Jesus was not crucified. <laughs> if he wasn't crucified and he wasn't risen from the dead, you have no Christianity. But for us to dwell together, we have to accept that. Now, out of that agreement on some of those things, then flows out laws. Those laws come from partly our historic cultures based on certain things that we agree in African traditional religions. It also comes from certain things that Christians and Muslims agree upon, and it also comes from certain things that we've borrowed from other nations. So for instance, in our secular constitution, we believe that all human beings are of infinite wealth. That cannot come to you from an atheist, foundationally. That is a religious statement that maybe just Jews, Christians, and Muslims can really hold to. Now, you may hold to it subjectively if you're an atheist. That doesn't mean it's consistent with your atheism. So from those cultures, we bring all these laws. And these laws are meant to guide us to live together as one Nigeria. But those laws have to also be careful that they cannot get into certain aspects, certain private aspects. So there is no law on adultery in our constitution. There isn't. And thank God there is not. I'm serious. There is no law if, that, if you lie, if you lie, if you lie now, if you lie now, you go to jail. Guess what? All of us will be in jail. And so the laws of a nation have its limits, and they have to be limited, especially in a secular nation. On the one hand, you want to be able to Put laws there that enable us to live together in harmony as much as is possible. But it cannot become the new religion. And therefore, in our country, we, there is a balance between trying to hold the laws of the land and some of the laws of your religion. Now, speaking as a Christian, and this can happen. If there are certain laws in our nation that contradict laws that the Bible tells me to obey, guess which one I'm going with? I'm going with the Bible. All righty. So, so, sorry, let me quickly finish. I'll, I'll find out. I'm going with the Bible. 
But the Bible also help, tells us to be good citizens. And so sometimes it's not always easy. So basically the answer to that is this complex thing of it's a mixture. It's a mixture. Your, 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 how you live uh, your life is a mixture of your religious laws. Sometimes your religious laws will be reflected in your national laws. But sometimes your religious laws will exclude certain things in your national laws. And we just have to be careful. Okay. Um, so the next question. Do deity or divinity of Jesus matters, matter, <laughs> matter in choosing a church? Though some church believe Jesus died and rose, and through him we, we are saved, and yet don't, don't believe in his divinity. Yeah. Do you understand? Yes, I understand that. It's basically saying, if I find a church, and sorry, after this we'll just allow, maybe some people have live questions. If I, have a, if I find a church that believe that Jesus died, rose again, and maybe they even believe that he's the only way through that, he's the only way to God, but they don't believe that Jesus Christ is actually God. That's called a cult, not a church. Now, why do I say that? Because not to say, the, when I've said that, I've not said the people in that place are not nice. They may be very fine people, very communal people, very loving people, very warm people, and as a Christian, I am meant to relate with them, you know, also in a loving way. But I can't go there. Why? Because when you deny something absolutely fundamental about the faith, you are creating another faith. The divinity of Jesus is as essential to the gospel as the death and crucifixion. That's why in the definition we said the incarnate, that is, the God who became flesh. In other words, what this is saying, if you say that Jesus was just a mere human being, then you are saying, ultimately, even though God put the plan there, salvation is by a human being. And what the Bible tells us, Jonah 2 verse 9, salvation is what? Of the Lord. It is so, and Christianity is so different from every other religion that it says that this, that God came to feel the feeling of our infirmities. No other religion gives you that. He's so close to you. He so understands your suffering. Why? Because he became like you and I. Because the Hebrews chapter 2. Because the children were flesh and blood. Because of that, he himself likewise took part of the sin. So that in death he may deliver all those who through the fear of death have all their lifetime been subjected to bondage. In other words, we had a God who conquered death because he also died. If you remove that, you are saying salvation came by an extraordinary human being, but a human being nonetheless. And that isn't Christianity. Okay. Any live questions? Yeah, we have two. All right. So we'll just take these two. Good evening. My name is Funshani Mashaum. And um, sorry, I have. Um, no. We'll just need you to speak a bit louder. For okay, sure. sorry. Um, the first question, sorry, I just, while you were talking, you were bringing up a whole lot of questions with it. So I'll just give you just about two or three, please. Okay, <laughs> two the or first three, meaning four, right? No, three. Okay, let, let's just say three. Can we keep it to two first so that we can get hers? And then if there's a little bit more time, I promise you we'll come back to it. Okay, the two then. Okay, um, the first one has to do with something you said about Jericho, but I'll bring to bring it to the Amalekites. 
Um, that has to do with First Samuel 15, verse 3. It says, um, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but sleep both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now the question here is, what is the scene of an ox and a sheep and a camel and ass? Because your answer to the question of Jericho was for the salvation of the world. Now, does an ox need salvation or a sheep? Why would God command that the whole animals in, uh, in Amalek be destroyed? That's question number one. Now, question number two happens to be, I'm, I'm not this kind of Christian that believes everything the pastor says. Thank God. Good. I'm this kind of Christian that, I told you when you came here, like, um, I'm very grateful. And the reason why I came here is that this would be like the first time a Christian would come up and tell the audience to ask questions. Where I come from, we do Bible study, we do faith clinic. Psst. Everything is just like the person talks, you just go home. Good. Now, I'm this kind of person that <laughs> I'll go home and read about it. Uh, first of all, you were saying something. I don't want to go there. That should have been a question. But um, it happens to have to do it. Me comparing, I'm, I'm a very good student of Bert Aman. He's um, an agnostic. I also, I look, for, I look at his debates with David Wood, Jay Smith, uh, Nobel Kureishi was a student of, uh, so I look at things like that. Now, there happens to be issues about the crucifixion, the historical evidences surrounding it. Now, you're saying the doctrine of Christianity centers a whole lot about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, the question here happens to come from John chapter 19, verse 39. When Nicodemus came, he asked for the body, and he, they said he came with two spices, 100 pounds. And from my calculation, that is 45 kg. 100 pounds of aloes and mar. And he mixed them, and he wound the body with this mixture. And the, it was kept, the body was kept in the tomb. And um, pilgrims who go to Jerusalem said, this tomb is actually a roomy chamber. It has a window and things like that. Now, the question is, what is the usefulness of 45 kg of aloe and mar? Because scientifically proven that this mixture is not for embalming. It is a healing mixture. So if, if historically, if Muslims and Jews don't use that for embalming, if Muslims say this thing was actually a fabrication, what do you think this mixture was actually used for? And the coming of um, Magdalene, Mary Magdalene on the third day to perform this rites is not Jewish. And she was still with this mixture. The body would have been decomposing. So what was she expecting? And Peter was very surprised that when he was told that Jesus had risen. Why was he surprised when he was actually with this man for about three years? Wasn't he expecting a resurrection? All right. I think I get that. I, I get that. I'm sure you could add more. I, but, honestly. but But, uh, yeah. So let me, let's, let's thanks. Um, name again? Funshaw, Animashaw. I think the Animashaw is the one people remember most. <laughs> All right, thanks for that. So, yeah, I, uh, let, me, let me remember what your first question was. Oh, Amalek and the ox. Yeah. Yes. You, like ox you like ox tail, right? <laughs> I can tell, yeah. 
please. Um, uh, what's your name again? Mercy. Mercy, please go ahead. Okay, good evening, everyone. Um, I have several questions like him, but I think <laughs> I'm going to leave it at two. Thank you. Mine has to do with um, some of the practices that go on in our churches. Um, I attend the church. It's not like I attend the church and I'm, you know, <laughs> so let's get that set to first. But um, I have a problem with um, capital intensive projects that go on from, you know, every nook and cranny. You know, the Bible says not one stone will be left standing on another. So my question is, why do we spend so much building these cathedrals that will not last? or that it's not going to remain after we are gone. Now, I'm looking at it from this angle. I'm not saying, of course, you always have the rich, the poor, and whatever. But my question is, in the midst of all these capital-intensive projects, where is mission? The Bible says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, you know, um, into Judea, Samaria, and all that. If we look at Nigeria, for instance, let, at least it's home for us, if you've traveled down the north, you discover that <laughs> Christianity is just in the West oh. and maybe in the South. And I ask myself, with the amount of money we spend in churches, crusades, whatever, fanfare, you know, how come people in Koma Hills, in this same Nigeria, have not even heard there's a Jesus until maybe, I think, sometime in the late 90s. But meanwhile, Serious fund is being, you know, expended in the south, all in the name of Christianity, private jets, you know, things that I wonder if we're going to heaven with. So well, my question, the, some private jets are so good, it will take you, you to heaven. You can't go to heaven with it. At least I know that. Okay, so that's one. So my question is, if we would spend so much on things that would not last, yeah. or on things that, I'm not saying when we gather we shouldn't have comforts. We should have good conveniences and all that. But you know this same church will be locked up all through the week, maybe until we come again on Wednesday. That, no, no, <laughs> just hold on. That's when it will be opened. I attend church very well, thank God for that. But my question is, why should we be spending so much keeping a building that even when maybe you are distressed and you just need to ask this God, where are you? And you want to walk into a church to pray, it's locked. I don't know if you get what I'm trying yeah. to say. I've been in such situations whereby you're just looking for just somewhere to kneel down and pray. But all the churches are locked. Mm. So where is the church exactly. and missions? All right, so can you get to the second one? Then, then this, okay, Sorry. <laughs> then the second one, mm, I'm looking at um, how can the Christian community help in terms of um, the tide of deceit that is going on? The tide of the deceit. So much deceit, all in the name of Christianity. Now, um, some would say, okay, don't judge another. Some would say, okay, not some would say. Then the Bible even says it. That do you have a, an example of what it's kind a of It's a sign of the end. What, do you have an example? So, of um, you know, the level of lack of integrity okay. when it has to do with in the church and amongst Christian brethren, okay. it's high. And, you know, a lot of things happen in the name of God PLC. You know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> then, um, no way. And they say, don't judge. I'm not yet to judge, but maybe just my mind. I question a lot of things. Yeah. My, and my mom complains. Some things just leave it like that. 
And I said, why should it be like that? It's been with me like, you know, since I knew myself. So my question is, should the church sit aloof and watch why this, you know, trend continues? Or is there something that the Christian body can do about it so that at least we can have a balance, even if it's just ethical? Let's just be civil. Okay. Thank you. Wow. One more question. All right. We just need it to be, uh, try and make it a question, right? So um, as quick as possible. Uh, so those five questions are. Hello, everybody. My name is Wally Adeeba. Um, I didn't want to ask my question until I heard everyone else speak. But um, this one is kind of personal to me because as human beings, we're all creatures of habits, right? Yeah. Everything we do in life is based off our habitual process. So along the line, as we grow, as we mature, we develop, we pick up habits. Smoking, unfortunately, unfortunately, is a bad habit a lot of us have. I am guilty of it. I've tried to quit multiple times, but I'll stop for a while, then somehow, somehow, I'll find myself with something in my hand, in my mouth, and I'm like, ah. Just happened. Where did this skin come from? <laughs> it's just here. <laughs> you know. Oh, ah. you, wow. And um, I'm thinking to myself, is it that I, I'm not good enough? Is it that I'm a bad person? And I think about all the other things I could be doing, and I'm like, mm, maybe I'm not so bad. Maybe I just lack that level of discipline which I really want for myself. And, um, and oh, this is still part of the question. Is smoking really a sin, one? And number two, if you smoke, can you serve in the house of God? Or are you living in sin? I've always wanted to understand that. Yeah. And there are some people here that are saying, that very question is a sign that we are in the end times. <laughs> are, you, are you going to? It's like, that, it's like that meme that you have this woman looking, she's like, are you under a spell? <laughs> and the funny thing with that question is, a couple of years ago, maybe like close to 10 years ago, I, I started to wonder why everyone thought that was such an easy question to answer, biblically, as a very serious student of the Bible. I started to wonder, like, this isn't a simple question. I'll tell you something. Since you, are, you, you had the last question, <laughs> you know, it's the first one you riff off. I was actually at um, 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 a, a pastor's uh, training, part of my training and all that, um, a couple of years ago in New York. And it was a kind of global training uh, thing. So we came from different parts of the world. And so at one point, we're walking down, you know, um, uh, Times Square. And so there's, there's myself from Nigeria. There are a couple of South Africans. Um, there, there's, there, there's a guy from Germany, a guy from Scotland, two from England. Um, and yeah, one or two Americans. And it was quite a, a mixed bunch. So we're going there. The guy from Austria just brought up his thing and I, ah. <laughs> like that guy now. Ah, ah, pastor, pastor. And in my mind, I'm like, you shouldn't be doing this. And I'm thinking if I do that, the guy says, chapter and verse. Now, do I think smoking is a sin? Yes. But I don't think you get to that as easily as we do it in Nigeria. 
That is, in other words, um, most people, most people, you know, there, there's something you can call biblical sin and cultural sin, right? How many Nigerians do you know? Nigerian Christians, don't drink beer. Beer, don't touch beer. And they like a good glass of whiskey. And you say, beer. Why should you take beer? Because it's alcoholic. Okay, they like Irish cream. Beer, 6 7% alcohol. Irish cream, 17 18%. <laughs> don't drink beer, Sha. Don't, don't drink beer. <laughs> and why? It's not really about the alcoholic content. It is a cultural content. Growing up, we knew this. Anyone that drank beer hung out in beer parlors. And if you hung out in beer parlors, you were a womanizer and you were a fraudster. So beer was a signature for being all of those things. And it's the same thing with smoking. Is that most people say, I don't know any Christian, I don't know of any good person that actually smokes. Therefore, smoking has to be one of the cardinal sins. Or that the time people used to smoke was the time people were going to clubs. And you know children of God don't go to clubs. And you go to club, right? You don't? Uh, you don't? All right. So it's a cultural, I'm just, just saying, just saying, you know. Sometimes we, we know each other, you know, that kind of. But the point is that it's a cultural sin, and sometimes we push it in such a degree that you can't actually justify it by the Bible. So let me tell you why I think smoking is a sin. Smoking is a sin in the same way I think, in the same way I think, and even though I enjoy the sport, I think it's wrong for box, uh, people to box. There is a difference between glut, um, somebody who is eating what they shouldn't eat and someone who is smoking. Why? Because while somebody is eating what he shouldn't eat, let's say you're taking too much fat and that is harmful to your body, the eating itself and the taking of food is actually a natural thing that humans should do. It is the byproduct of that eating that is harmful to you. And you should still have self-control on that. But there is nothing about smoking that is beneficial to you. And when you do that, the Bible says God places a premium on our bodies, not just our spirits. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, there's the same argument in 1 Corinthians 6, um, 9, 14 to 19, why you shouldn't sleep with someone that is not your husband. Eventually, it says, don't you know that God, that um, um, Christ, uh, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and God it um, resides in that, and God will raise the body on the last day. Because of that, treasure your bodies in the same way God treasures your body. So when you practice an act that from beginning to end, there is no good thing that, bring, that it's bringing. It is bringing destruction even though, and please let's stop scaring people with just with cancer. There are many people that have been smoking for 50, 60 years, and they died at the age of 90 very well. You know, that's not the best way to do it. But we do know in controvertible evidence that smoking does not bring any good thing to you. So I don't rate smoking, though, in the same way that I rate adultery. And I don't think the Bible does. You see, it takes a longer time to get there. So as Christians, what should we do with people that smoke? If you see someone that smoke, you shouldn't all immediately think that person is not a Christian. What you should do is be friendly with the person and try in, as you have a relationship with the person, to try to understand why the person, sometimes some people is addiction, right? And yes, addiction, you can have an addiction that is actually a sin, but rather than just condemn, you should be trying to help the person to see how they can come off that addiction. So I, I don't know whether that helps. 
with that. So can, right? he, can he serve in church? And I will have add the B part to it. When I've done there for other questions. The, if the, um, the substance doesn't do harm to your body, say you are vaping or you are taking shisha and it's herbs or whatever, you know. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's, what's, I don't know what, what's, vaping is what? Vapor. Vaping isn't harmless. Okay, let me let me now, now, let's calm down, <laughs> calm down. I have friends that do the shisha, I have friends that do vaping, and all of those. Let's try to be careful how we don't again, especially with vaping and shisha, where I guess the science is out there, and we are just, we're, you know, science sometimes it takes a while for science to come to consensus on a particular thing. So if science, if good if good scientists, good reputable scientists, are having disagreement on some of these issues, right? It's not incontrovertible that it is wholly harmful, right? While the science is ongoing, if a Christian brother wants to do it, please just leave him. I'm serious, just leave them. These aren't the biggest issues. And there's a way sometimes we can elevate. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have an opinion on it. You can have an opinion. But whilst it's still in the realm of that kind of we're not quite sure, then we can allow for some kind of Christian liberty. If it gets into the realm where we are certain that it really does that harm, the same kind of harm that smoking tobacco does, then we have to be able to tell that brother, here's what we have. Now, does, can that person serve in the church? It depends on what kind of service in the church. There, there are different kinds of service in the church, right? That some, at least in our church, you can be a member, and if you're a member, you can serve in a particular capacity, right? And that opens. But that doesn't mean for you to become um, a, what we call gospel community leader, for you to become a gospel community leader, there are more things that are required of you because then you are meant to be an example in certain things. And then for you to become an elder, that is also the requirements are there. So, of course, if it's not one of those things that is so openly, brazenly wrong, then there should be some forms that which the person can serve. But the person also has to say, look, if this is the life that you've chosen, right, fine, no problem, no one's going to force it upon you. But you also have to identify that the church itself has a requirement, um, a responsibility to actually put a red line on certain things. And if you disagree, that there's, we don't have to make a hoopla over the whole thing. We just know that we disagree on that. So it's not excluding. Now, let me get into these other big questions. But Erman, um, over there, is a really interesting, is a really interesting fellow. And uh, I don't know if some of you have heard about Bert Erman. He's a, he was a, he was, he's a deconvert. Right, raised as a Christian, but eventually agnostic, and um, and says a lot um, against Christianity. Let me say one of the things. So, I, I part of my um, 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 my past life is I spent a lot of time in academia, right, and so sometimes I engage with some of these things and try to see where the 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 place of scholarship is going on this. Now, I'm not saying this because I, um, this, you know, what we call ad hominem, just attack the person and, and, um, um, and then not deal with the person's arguments. 
But widely, Bart Ehrman is not considered as a, as a credible scholar. And I'm not saying that among Christians alone. That is, there are a lot of, um, of non-Christians that will look at many of his arguments and say, Oga, how come now? So let me give you one, for instance, on the issue that you were talking about. Like, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ something that is worth a debate over? And in historical scholarship, wide historical, when I say wide, wide historical scholarship, apart from mavericks here and there, this is as incontrovertible is um, a historical fact than, than you can attest to to any ancient claim. And I'll give you reasons why. Some of the things that um, the places you pointed to notwithstanding. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I wouldn't deal exactly with that particular, um, with the particular fact that I mentioned. And I'll tell you why. No, uh, yeah, uh, but I'll tell you why. Because um, the way historians deal with certain things, to be able to map and picture how is this thing, was this thing true, is not when you go into every single detail of what is written. Because you can get into some details and say, I'll quite frankly tell you, I don't know why in terms of, and I have to check that out, and I'm not saying because I don't know why, that there are no credible answers to it. I'm just telling you, I don't know on that specific thing. The fact that they use more um, than um, that, that would seem to, for it to be a healing um, a mixture doesn't throw into much into consideration. How do I know? For instance, if Emmanuel here is here, and Emmanuel was the second coming of Lawrence Anini. Who knows Lawrence Anini? The biggest, baddest thief that Nigeria has ever had. Lawrence Anini, who knows? The guy drove, he reversed all the way from Lagos to Ibadan. It is not a legend. He did it. <laughs> he did it. I don't know. How did I know? I just know. The guy was, he was a bad guy. Okay, fine. He was a legend. It's not true. He didn't do that, but it's nice. All right? Emmanuel is the second coming of Lawrence and Nini. And Emmanuel now has been caught. And Emmanuel has to be executed. And we get three snipers to shoot Emmanuel. Emmanuel is exactly where Emmanuel is, and those three snipers stay there. And they say, aim, fire, and they shoot. And the record has it that Emmanuel was shot. What would we say? I said three experts, the best expert snipers in Nigeria. They came, they were standing there, Emmanuel was here. They said, aim to kill, and they shot. If you heard that story, what would you what would you conclude? That he was killed. Now, but after, there was an additional detail. Emmanuel's wife, after the event, bought Emmanuel's favorite food. Emmanuel's favorite food. After the event, she brought Emmanuel's favorite food. And then I say, huh. If she knew that he was dead and she saw that he killed him, why did she bring the food? Now, the one thing you want to question is this. Can I believe the reliability of the reports that there were three snipers that came from the Nigerian army and they actually 
were pointing to kill. And you say, you investigate that. And if you investigate that those records are as clean as you can get, then the question then becomes, but why did she bring the food? You know what you're going to probably say? You say, I don't know, but the guy is dead. <laughs> Here's my point. There was no one more expert in the execution of crucifixion than the Roman soldiers. When Roman soldiers executed someone by crucifixion, the guy, the guy died. No, hold on, hold on. All right, hold on. If I allow you to come, then we'll answer the other question. So whatever your rebuttal is, we'll take it up there because you still have another question. Remember the ox. Now, if the Roman soldiers did that, that's one of the reasons. We know that they, they've always executed. It's not a hard thing. Second, how do I, if they said, some of us that are here, who, uh, greater Stakokite? Uh, my people. <laughs> and, uh, and all the lesser, greater schools. Sorry, there's only one greatest in Nigeria. Greater Stakokite. Now. My, my what? My <laughs> now, now, let's not, please, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, let me, wait, wait, please, 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 silence. I want you two guys to remember, don't think because of all this question and answer. I am still a man of God. I can call down the wrath of God upon you. Who is that? Maulag. The thing died immediately. Please, don't, don't. Now. Greater Akokite, if you say you attended the University of Lagos between the years of 98 to 2002, you attended there. Now, 50 years later, there was a report that someone wrote, and he was writing something. He was running from Senate, and when he was running the Senate, he now said, ah, your CV. He said, I went to Unilag in 2000, uh, from 1999 but I left in 2000, uh, 2001. Why did you leave? I had to go to another school because of the great fire that collapsed the whole of Unilag. Right, so I had to now move to um, um, Obin Institute of Technology. All right, so that's why I left. What is going to happen? Well, chances are you were in Unilag when you were, uh, I don't know, 1920. And so 50 years later, by no kind of illness, you'll still be alive, right? You'll be in your 70s. There'll be a number of us in our 70s. What's the first thing I'm going to say? <laughs> Excuse me. There was no fire. Now, if one person came out and said there was no fire, they would say, well, it's your own argument against that, that guy's argument. If 20 people came out and said there was no fire, and it's only you, what will most people believe? So when you judge history, one of the things you have to see is, one, how many witnesses do you have? Two, how close were the witnesses to the event? Because if another story came up 300 years later, where a guy said, because of the great fire in Unilag, and there were no witnesses to stand up, what is it going to be? The problem is you're going to say, well, it's 300 years later, all the eyewitnesses are dead. So history, historians put two things together. When we are reading historical manuscripts to know the credibility, 
Mr. Animash, I hope you are with me, to know the credibility of whether historical manuscripts are true in their claims. You have to know how many of those manuscripts exist, because that's like the photocopies, how many of them exist, and the closest, the oldest of those, how close are they to the original event? Now, many of us have heard of um, Homer's Iliad, right? How many of us? And most of us will probably believe Agamemnon and all of those things we believe. Now, in terms of ancient antiquity, that is the second most credible ancient witness, just in terms of the, 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 the oldest manuscript is about 500 years to the original event. And the number of manuscripts I think it has is somewhere in this, I think is less than 100 in, in terms of whatever. With the New Testament, and so with what you have is, for historians, the, in terms of it, the claims, they rate it as the second as about 95% accurate in what it says because of those things. The New Testament has hundreds of manuscripts that date to the second century. And thousands, uh, so the first, uh, to, yeah, second century. And thousands that date to um, second, third century. In terms of the accuracy of what is being the claims, can we believe it? It scores 99.9%. I don't know every single detail. I can't explain because I am not a first century person. And yes, there are many scholars that are looking into those things. But that doesn't mean I can't get into the most important claims. Now, if I want to contrast that with what the Quran says, here's the Quran's witness against the New Testament. The Quran has one witness about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, one man, one witness. When did he get his witness about this? How many people were around him? There was no one that was around him. The New Testament has four witnesses that were Christian in the first century, and then it has two witnesses outside of Christianity. These are people that are not Christians. Again, in the first century, Josephus and Tacitus, there are people that are witnessing to this and are not Christians. So here, in the first century, I have six, six, um, six witnesses, and not all of them are Christians. And then I have, with the Quran one witness, and when does he see his own? 600 years after. Secondly, or finally, all of these witnesses are within, they are around the events that happen. That is, they are geographically located around the events that happen. Whereas with the Quran, Muhammad is 700 miles away from where it happened. 700 miles, 600 years. Six witnesses close to the first century. Excuse me if you're a thinking person, which one do you want to go with? Now, four witnesses. Why four witnesses? That's another huge claim. Some people say four witnesses. If something, if an event, if someone killed someone around here, and there are four witnesses to that event, if you gather four of them and they say, and you ask them in separate rooms, guys, um, what happened with this event? And they give you the story, the recording of that, of what they saw in that event, the killing. And when they finish giving it to you, everything is word for word. If you're an investigator, what are you going to say? It was told there was a fabrication. 
Because as human beings, we don't always see everything from the same vantage point. What you want to get, though, with all their stories, and when I came in, it was around 8.30, and that's when the, thing, that's when the person was shot. Then this other one comes and says, well, it was, it was after 7 o'clock. Well, you say, after 7. 8.30. 7 and after 8.30 sound very much like the same. And that is what you have with the New Testament, the four records. It is never exactly the same, but they all get to one point. That guy, he was crucified by Romans and he was given over by the Jews. And eventually, he rose again. Peter went, uh, Mary Magdalene was there, all of those things. In fact, if you want to fabricate it, why was Mary Magdalene the one that went for it? In the Jewish times, if you wanted to fabricate a story, in fact, do you know that women's testimony was not admissible in court? Therefore, if you really wanted to cook this up the story, are you not going to say that the first witnesses should be men? Let's wipe out the women. The only reason why you put women whose testimony was not admissible in court is because it doesn't really help your story, is why? That's the truth. Then we talk about Peter. Why was Peter surprised? Do you know why Peter was surprised? Because Peter was like, you and I, dead people don't rise. That's why he wasn't expecting it. In fact, you have in the writings of the gospel, it's not just about the death. John himself will say, you know, when he said this thing, we were thinking that this thing is really, really deep. We really didn't understand. But after he rose from the dead, because he said after he rose from the dead, he spent 50 days teaching them about the things of the kingdom. And he said, many of these things you will not understand now, even though I'm saying it, but when I rise, you will see. And don't forget, what you have in the scriptures, if Mark writes, and Mark writes 16 chapters, he's writing 16 chapters about three and a half years of someone's life. It is highly selective. So the way we see, oh, Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again. And Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. And maybe he said that three times in three and a half years. But we see it three times reported in Mark. But because you read it in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, then you say, ah, so why didn't Peter, why didn't Peter um, think about it? But it didn't happen in that same span of time. The reason why they were not expecting it is because, as had been proven, people did rise from the dead, and they still did not believe him, even though he had been with them. And one of the things he kept telling them is, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is unbelief. All right, so I'm happy to carry on that conversation there. And now the other three questions I'm just going to try and answer quick. Why the ox? I don't know. The ox belong to the community of the Amalekites. And you know what? When I get to heaven, I'll say, God, couldn't you spare the ox? I'll ask him. I'll say, couldn't you spare the ox? Why exactly? Look, there are many things I read in the Bible. I actually don't, I'm not sure. I don't understand. But here's the thing. You don't need. My wife is here. I don't, before I commit to my wife, and before I committed to my wife, I didn't have her answer every single question and every single thing that I had. Faith, unlike what some people think, the Bible never commands you into blind faith. Never commands you into blind faith. You have to have evidence for the faith that you, you believe. But the Bible also says one thing. 100% evidence is not going to convince somebody that doesn't believe. In fact, 
to give evidence, as someone said, to give evidence to someone that believes is just like you are giving him more reasons to justify why he doesn't actually believe. He's going to say, what about this one? What about that one? What about this one? Those details are not as incidental. The most important thing there that I was trying to teach was God gave an order to Saul, go and do what I have told you. If you really believe I am God, and you, as the king of Israel, should be submissive to this God, you do as I say. And Paul, Saul's ultimate sin was that he thought that even though God gave this order, I can give an advice to God. That's the ultimate and cardinal sin. Because what you are choosing to do is to be God instead of the one God. Now, I don't know every single detail, and I keep saying that. But for me, that doesn't, whether or not he should have killed the ox, has nothing, has very little to do with whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as most historians have proven, but I'll say this, if you really want to test it from a historical standpoint, go and read this book. And, you know, if, if you're the kind of thinking person and you want to pride yourself as a thinking person, before you talk about saying, I have this doubt, go and read The Resurrection of the Son of God by Tom Wright. It is not an easy book. It is about 800 pages, but it is the incontrovertible book that if you have to deny this, you must answer every question that is, he puts there. And so as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't underpin that. Jesus affirms those Old Testament scriptures, and I, I follow with that. So in everything on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not saying that there are no things here and there that we don't understand, but you don't have to believe everything. Anytime you get on a plane, you don't take a, a, a measurement meter and go into every single nook and cranny of the engine. You go, you say, Air France, when last did they have a plane crash? Eh, once in 50 years. Okay. Do you, have you even seen the pilot? Most of the time, do we see the pilot? No. But we jump on the plane, do we? We don't get all the evidence we need. We get crucial evidence, and then we follow. If you hear, like when Dana was crashing, how many people were going through Dana? When Sosolisha crashed, Sosolisha crashed, when you ah, no, no, no. Because that is, a crucial, that is crucial evidence, all right? What do we do about, um, what about mission? Now, what about the cathedrals? Now, there are two ways to answer, there are two things I should say about this. You are absolutely right. In fact, one of the things I couldn't say about the centrality of the gospel, there are two things that if you want, or three things. The, if the gospel is center in a church's life, it will do three things. It will renew individuals, it will save individuals and renew them. By renewal, I mean it turns them into true worshipers of God, right? They keep, um, they, they become more and more holy, not as a, um, not as a, a sense of, um, if I do this, God won't punish me. But in a sense of love and honor towards God, right? They become more and more renewed. Two, it develops community. And three, it empowers for mission. So worship, community, and mission are important if the gospel is truly centered. Where you can see some deficiencies of the gospel is if, yes, we are pushing, 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 pushing for members, but we are building an empire. They may call it community, but they are building an empire. And many times, many of those churches, you know what they do? Who cares about non-Christians? We can get the Christians. We just move one uh, group of people from one church. We give them better things, and they come to this place. They're not really concerned about mission. And the non-Christians, they're concerned about building an empire. That's a really bad thing. And so sometimes what a huge edifice like that 
can do is that it's a testament to things that are happening here. This is the new place. That is a scandal to the gospel. Nonetheless, I don't want to immediately say that there, are no place, there is no place for big buildings. Even when, yes, there are some people that are unreached. Because sometimes you build a base so that you can have a platform to reach more people. I can, for instance, have a budget, let's say, of $20 million to start a church. I say, ah, look, at the mission of God is not complete. There are, and there are so many poor people around here. Why not take $19.5 million to show that the church really cares for the poor and send it to the poor and send out missionaries? That will be absolutely detrimental to the mission of God. Because that person has not been financially smart or savvy and in his quote-unquote zeal to show people that we, are, we care so much for the poor, he has done, he has committed financial mismanagement. What he needs to do is to take those, that $20 million, care about the gospel, employ some good quality staff that will be able to have um, a place where, for instance, you can employ good writers, right, good preachers that can build a church, that can bring more people, that eventually can raise more money, that then we can have a place where we are not sustaining missionaries for two years. We are building to ensure that we can sustain missionaries for a hundred years. When we build the building, we can have four classrooms for our children because you know what? In 20 years' time, that four-year-old may be given to missions. So we invest in our children's ministry. But to invest in the resources and for our children's ministry, we may have to have classrooms and media equipment to show that. You see what I'm saying? You can have a cathedral as a testament to a man's own ego, or you can have a big building as a platform to continue the mission of God. It matters what is going on in the person's heart. You see, when you see the church... On the one hand, you had the church 3,000, 5,000 in Jerusalem. On the other hand, you can see the church in smaller places. The church in Antioch was the strongest church, and that is why Paul, was able to, Paul and Barnabas were able to be propelled from that church throughout the whole world. So I'm saying that let us not quickly rush into saying, well, they seem to spend this amount of money on these people. Ah, look at what they are paying this particular leader. Well, look at, well, his church members, some of them are sleeping in one-bedroom apartment. Okay, pastor, go and sleep in one-bedroom apartment as well so that you can show that you are, you, are, you are identifying with your church members. And the man goes there, one-bedroom apartment, he has candle. And so when he comes and preaches on Sunday and he starts preaching nonsense because he couldn't study. And eventually, after doing it for two or three Sundays, you who are complaining about the fact that uh, we, uh, he's, he's collecting too much, you now start saying, you know what, I think pastor has lost his anointing. No, he didn't lose the anointing. He lost his study space. That's what happened. You, you see, now, I know that can be pushed to another place so that the pastor now is not, you don't understand. Business class is becoming too crammed. People are asking me too many questions. For me to really get the anointing, I need a new golf stream. You start knowing that, there's, that, that there is no excuse for that. So there are lines that can be crossed. I totally agree. But I'm saying let's us not quickly jump the gun and just say, anytime we see a particular expense that we see and say, uh-uh, why did they do that? 
That expense may be spent as an investment in the kingdom to enable greater propagation of the kingdom. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. Tell the rich, right, that they should invest in the kingdom in that way they are, they are, they are investing more in eternal life. So that's that. And then f your final question was... Huh? Oh, very simple. The gospel needs to come back. I, look, if you come to this church, that, that's the only thing we ever talk about. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. We call ourselves a gospel-centered urban church. Look, when the gospel becomes the center of the church, God becomes the center. And when I mean God, I don't just mean God anymore. I'm talking about the Trinitarian God. You don't have the gospel without the Trinitarian God. The Father appoints, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies. In the fullness of time, God, the Father, sent his Son under the law to redeem them who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sonship. And after that, they sent the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. Anytime you see the gospel, you see the Trinitarian God. And so the presence and the preaching and the application of the gospel in our worship, look, the, 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 the problem we have is huge. Look at even the songs that we call worship songs today. But I'm telling you, all of this is happening because, in many ways, the glory has departed. But the glory has departed because the word of God has departed. The fact that I preach the Bible doesn't mean I'm preaching the word of God. When it says in Acts, the word of the Lord continued to advance. The word of the Lord continued to advance. It was a specific word of the Lord. The good news that the incarnate crucified son... Jesus Christ is the Lord and impending judge of the world. That is how you fight all the enemies in the spiritual places. When you take that out, in many ways, you have taken God out. And once God comes out, then all manner of things can start to happen. But here's what I'll leave with you. I'm every other person that is feeling in some ways like, ah, what's going to happen? The, the, um, the, work, is so, is so, the, the work is so great. We have a gospel that has hope built into it. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. With all the darkness that you are seeing around, if you are really that burdened, don't turn into somebody that complains and complains and complains and complains and throw your hands. Turn into someone that says, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. So what you should you do? What Jesus said we should do? Not just send. He said, do what? Pray that the Lord of harvest will send what? Laborers. If you feel that you, are, you can't labor that much, pray about it. So one, join a healthy church that is imperfect. Two, be part of the reason that church is healthy. Three, join in the mission of that healthy church. And be more of a positive force in the gospel than you are a negative force in just criticizing everything over there. Criti criticism, over criticism doesn't advance. It just complains. I'm not saying there's not a place to talk about it. There is. There is a place to contrast, to say this is wrong. There's a place to even pray in lament to God that look at what has happened. But you don't stay there alone. Ask your kingdom come, and how can I be an agent of the spread of that kingdom? Thank you. Wow. wow. Well, we wish we could go on. It's been fun. Um, you know, putting Femi on the hot seat or on the white seat. Uh, but unfortunately, that's all we have for now. Um, we thank you so much for coming. We thank you for your contributions. We thank you for the questions, for the 
difficult questions and the questions about the oxen and all of that. Um, just a few announcements. Our sermon podcast, The Gospel in Lagos, is on SoundCloud. So please, please, please download, share, uh, give someone. And then also, um, we have a blog which is hosted on our site, citychurchlagos.com. That's citychurch with a Y, lagos.com. And he has a number of articles that can help us. And finally, if um, Femi has done his job today, he has, if he has been successful in convincing you and not confusing you that even though you have Jesus, you need a church home, please, please come join us or, you know, join one of our communities or even come to any of this Lagos um, Questions Christianity events. Bring a friend and, um, yeah. So let's do this again and have a nice evening. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.